Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show, six years ago today, Monday, Trayvon Martin was killed. We'll look back at the event and the movement it started. And Urban Glass turns 40. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Brian Vines filling in for Ashley Ford. We've got a full show today. Last week, we brought you the story of a lawsuit against some NYPD officers for a practice known as collars for dollars. That's when cops make arrests, sometimes questionable ones, at the end of their shifts in order to garner overtime for the hours spent processing the booking. The Brooklyn cops in this case were acquitted, with the judge ruling the plaintiff had failed to make his case. Though many officers concede it is widespread, the practice itself has never gone on trial. The same is true with the NYPD's other money-generating effort, the one that involves quotas for arrests and summonses. Last year, a class-action lawsuit dealing with more than a dozen cops was partially dismissed by a judge before he even considered the merits. The cops sued the department because of the retaliation they experienced for not meeting these quotas, which they claim disproportionately impact the poor and people of color. Over $900 million of the city's annual budget comes from summonses, fines, and arrests. This is the subject of a new documentary called Crime and Punishment, which premiered at Sundance last month and will be screening in New York City soon. Full disclosure, the producer of this show was also a producer on that doc. Stay tuned for more on the subject. On today's show, a conversation on the anniversary of the killing of Trayvon Martin with the president of Brooklyn's NAACP, L. Joy Williams, and culture critic, Torre. And we'll talk with our co-tenants, Urban Glass, which is always up to something cool, or I should say hot, I guess. But first, these things. Here's what's happening these days on the solar front. In a couple of transparently pro-coal moves, the president taxed solar panel imports earlier this year and reduced subsidies on this and other green technologies by 72%. On the other hand, our mayor is working with City University of New York to solarize NYC and just announced a partnership that will provide group discounts for solar panels and installation to qualifying Brownsville residents. Shares from the power generated by the panels will be available to other members of the community who cannot install panels themselves. If you want more information about solar in your neighborhood or would like to enroll in a share, you can email nysolar at cuny.edu. This week, the nonprofit advocacy group Riders Alliance is sending roughly 50 volunteers to subway stations in a week-long effort to provide civics lessons to its outer borough riders. The action is intended to pressure Governor Cuomo to pump more money into the beleaguered MTA system that he governs. On Wednesday, we'll be bringing you an entire episode on the MTA, including an interview with the Riders Alliance campaign manager. So stay tuned for that. And it was announced last week that the FCC will end net neutrality rules on April 23rd. But some online platforms haven't given up on keeping the net neutral just yet. Organizations like Fight for the Future, Demand Progress, and Free Press Action Fund, and companies including Reddit, Tumblr, Etsy, and Medium are participating in a day of online and 
offline protest on February 27th. The protest, called Operation Hashtag One More Vote, will call upon businesses, web users, and more to flood lawmakers with phone calls and emails from constituents. If they can obtain one more vote in the Senate, they can trigger the Congressional Review Act, which could block the repeal. For more information, go to battleforthenet.com. Coming up, our first guests. Six years ago, Trayvon Martin was killed by local Florida Neighborhood Watch Coordinator George Zimmerman. Martin's death and Zimmerman's subsequent acquittal sparked outrage across the country, prompting even President Obama to say that Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. But the fatal shooting also sparked a movement, as activist Alicia Garza included in a Facebook post these three words, Black Lives Matter. To talk with us about the death of Trayvon Martin and the movement it inspired, we welcome the president of Brooklyn's NAACP chapter, L. Joy Williams. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And journalist and culture critic, Torre. Welcome to 112BK, sir. Thank you, Brian. So we are in a moment. The man would have been in his early 20s right now, mm. and the world is suffering the loss. But starting with the Black Lives Matter movement, before we work our way back to Trayvon, how do you think the world would be different if a fourth word would have been added? Black Lives Matter, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't think of, uh, you know, what that would have mattered in the conversation. Uh, I think certainly um, it being succinct, um, the, the phrase of Black Lives Matter is actually to some people a... a, a, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Offensive. Offensive. <laughs> it is. You know, and, and to think that. And, yeah. you know, I went back um, com- before coming here to look at when I first, some of the tweets of when I first heard about um, mm-hmm. the shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tweeted about it first. The first story I heard about it was March 9th. So it was, you know, a couple of days after it actually happened. And, you know, I tweeted being sick about it, being heartbroken about it. And then subsequently, the the conversations being focused on whether or not someone else had a right because they feared for their life. And there was never any um, focus giving on the humanity or the fear that Trayvon Martin himself um, felt. Um, we know that because of his calls. We know that because of his screams. Um, down the barrel of right. And that we had, we had this national conversation, and there were actually people uh, uh, having this conversation about whether someone else had the right to take his life, and he didn't have a right to stand up for his. Mm-hmm. And so the statement of Black Lives Matter um, fit the moment. Yeah. It was succinct. Um, it was something that we all felt people across the country could identify with, people of African descent could the identify world, with. And then ultimately um, the world, because I looked back at tweets as well, and there were protests in London and, you know, in Paris and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so it, it reminds me that as much progress that we have made in this country, yeah. it is still offensive to some people for us to live in our freedom. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, I think the succinctness gives it a certain power and an immediacy. Um, but, you know, relevant to this conversation, the original name for the uh, L.A. chapter of Black Lives Matter was Justice for Trayvon Martin. So this really—this movement really does begin out of Trayvon Martin. And in retrospect, it bubbled up very slowly. There was about, what, two or three weeks between when this killing happened and when it became national news. National, yeah, yeah. national media was not covering it at all yeah. for about three weeks. And there was a bubbling up on Twitter. Um, Twitter was used to really sound them. I mean, I remember I was going on with Tamron Hall. She was doing the 2 o'clock show then on MSNBC. And I just tweeted out, like, yeah, I'm going on with Tamron Hall to talk about this. And a bunch of people were like... Hijack the conversation and talk about Trayvon Martin. Nothing else matters. And I was like, what is this story that you're talking about? Nobody had ever suggested, like, screw your segment and just talk about this. Right. And I had to dig beyond the New York Times, beyond the Washington Post, to try to figure out what is happening here. The story sounded completely shocking. Uh, and, you know, a black person was shot and killed and... Nothing happened. The person was not even detained, not even for a moment. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, it definitely drove toward the idea of, once again, black lives don't matter. And it makes sense to be that that phrase and this movement sprung out of this killing. But part of what I think was different about this one, because mm. in the moment after these things happen, when it starts to spread into media, there's images that pop up that suggest to everybody, this is what you should think about people. Yeah. And this was the first time that the black family dominated that early image war, right? right. The first images you saw of Trayvon, they didn't get he's, making. he's yeah. in his nice, clean football uniform, he's on horseback, yeah. he's skiing. Yeah. So there are people who cared enough about Trayvon to take him on vacation, mm -hmm. to take him skiing, to take him to ride horses. Yeah. So that suggested immediately... Oh, he has humanity. He should be taken seriously. He's not a thug. Whereas the Zimmerman portrait was, he's holding the thing, he right. looks all His dour. And, right, yeah. right, He looked like, you know, he looked evil. Yeah, so you believe. So that sort of propelled people like, we got to stand up for this one. And, and you saw uh, Tracy and Sabrina, his parents. We did not know in the early days that they were not then together. Right. They showed up in Florida, in New York, together. standing together. But they maintain even to this day, we are together as far as our for kids. Our as, for, as, right. far as, as far as the kids, but right. it really made a difference to see them standing together because it said, oh, wow, look at this powerful couple grieving publicly for their son. Mm -hmm. If we had, you know, there were other killings where yeah. you just saw the mom well, not come out. Bill and, and Camille. Right. Like, well, had there been well, this... <laughs> Um, yeah, I said that's a little different. <laughs> Bill and that's Camille Cosby showed up, and I remember watching that moment in the culture at the NAACP Awards when someone said, "Thank you for showing us how to grieve with dignity." Mm. And that was because you didn't see the single black mother yes. standing out there grieving for her son who was gone too soon, lost yeah. to the corner. Yeah. Mm. So, what is it about this cultural moment? when Black Lives Matter can be seen as a threat and get you on a terrorist watch list, mm -hmm. where we had, in my opinion, and I'm saying my opinion, it, it's the say it loud of this generation. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and in, in every generation has these touchstone moments. Mm -hmm. 
um, that and slogans, frankly, right? Come from. Not only slogans, but then also either, unfortunately, a killing, um, a death, or something that propels a, the movement further. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can equate it to Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. um, you can equate it in the early days of the civil rights movement when Martin Luther King and others were um, were uh, advocating for civil rights in right. the South um, before Emmett Till. So there are a number of instances, and I was just talking um, just this week about the Children's Crusade in 63, about there are different points that happen um, along with the uh, camera mm -hmm. or journalists or reporters um, that add to that moment to make it a moment of resistance for a generation. I mean, you know, I remember feeling like there was leadership in the 60s and maybe into the early 70s. Yeah. And after that, there wasn't a sense of black leadership. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like, well, perhaps we are too uh, advanced or mature and complex and diverse as a community to have that one or right. two leaders. And that is not the case, right? We saw, I mean, Black Lives Matter does not speak for every black person, yeah. but there certainly was a void that these sisters and the others who came behind them filled in terms of we can be led, we can have a civil rights organization. Now, critically, this is, they say, leader-full. Others would say leader-less. Like, purposely, there's not an individual. DeRay is the most famous of them, but there's not supposed to be one person who's spo the spokesperson who we're all listening and to. That, and that's strategic, because yes. you're also thinking about um, just the of the pre—right, it yeah. takes a target off of individual people. Because remember, there, you know, there were additional leaders during the Civil Rights Movement right. as well, yes. but then you all see them, you know, cut down or you see them targeted. Right. And so the idea is, if we don't, you know, make up one person to say, on a pedestal. One, that means that we can all be accountable to each other because there's not one particular person leading us. But then second, it's harder to diffuse the resistance. It's yeah. harder, you know, to uh, uh, squash it. It's harder, you know, to say, well, if I turn this one person down, then the protest won't happen. No, because yeah. we have social media, because we have these things that people will just organically show up right. because someone said, you know, we're going to go to, you know, the press conference, we're going to go to City Hall, we're yeah. going to go and do this. And and so it's an evolution um, of uh, that type of resistance and that type of organizing. And this is the most powerful civil rights organization we have seen since the 60s. Yep. And I would say it has already had a massive impact on America and changed America indelibly just from getting people to see that these killings are not isolated incidents. Mm -hmm. They are related to systematic racism. It's still in its and infancy. media didn't know yeah. the sort of questions to ask, the connections to make, to see these different killings in different cities as one. And Black Lives Matter taught us yeah. these are all uh, connected incidents. So, speaking of those connections that happened, I know uh, Tamika Mallory was on The View at the end of last week, and she made a statement about the world is watching, rightfully so, the NRA and what's happening down again in Florida <laughs> right now, and saying, you know, I, no tragedy diminishes another, like, from the outset, sure. but saying that the world is watching now and something might move, hopefully, on guns and gun control, but there were still the 17 young people who died in Chicago over the weekend who no one is paying the same attention or giving that mm -hmm. voice to. So while Black Lives Matter, of course, so does legislation, I wonder where you guys think 
outside of changing hearts and minds and making that connecting the dots for some folks where the movement can go, knowing that there is governors and a movement in Congress right now to make concealed carry the law of wherever you go. If, for instance, in Florida, you can have this weapon and stand your ground and be concealed carry, and they want to transfer those rights to wherever you are. Like, I'm from Florida, and I can conceal my gun there so I can walk down the streets of Brooklyn with the same— yeah. Rights. Yeah, well, you know, that's part of the reason, uh, you know, my work through Brooklyn NAACP, I tell people all the time, I'm not interested in changing your heart and your mind. I'm interested in having laws on the books to protect me from you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's my goal. And so when we're advocating, while there may be others, and maybe that's their passion, maybe that's their role of, you know, changing, right. you know, people's hearts and mind, yeah, mine is, you know, legislation. Mine is suing in the court. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the things that are going to get those changed. And so, as we saw, that you know, their stand your ground laws are still on the books yeah. in, a, in a number of states. Um, in a number of states, even after that killing, they were trying to introduce them yeah. mm -hmm. um, and go forth. Here in New York State, I mean, we, there is no burden for New York State. Um, every law enforcement agency, we've tried several times in trying to get legislation passed that law enforcement, from sheriff's office to local police departments in this state, report their, uh, the deaths and the race um, to the Justice Department. You get pushback from that, right? When we're talking about uh, passing legislation, even in the city council, with majority of people of serving on that council, a majority of Brooklyn electeds on that oh, council, that and uh, addressing issues of police accountability, right. there is resistance. So it's, it's that power and the structure that's our responsibility mm -hmm. to break down. Um, and yes, hearts and minds help move legislation, yeah. but at the end of the day, we have to uh, be focused on mobilizing and electing people who will actually change those structural barriers. And that is the core problem we face, that the NRA still feels like a giant threat to certain lawmakers who don't want to go against it. We talk about the money that folks that they donate, the NRA donates to folks, but that's not really yeah. the source of their power. The source of their power is, if you don't get that A rating from the NRA, then we will mobilize people right. to, to run against you. We will mobilize voters to come out and vote against you. And everybody in Washington is afraid of being voted out. Um, the NRA loves to say that they are here for gun owners. That is not true in any way. They are here for gun, gun manufacturers, manufacturers, right? That is what—they are a lobbying organization that is constantly trying to make sure that the potential customer base is as large as possible. Um, and part of where you see this is, you know, John Crawford was shot in a, a, an Ohio Walmart while he was shopping to buy a rifle. Yeah. Uh, the NRA was not there for him. Philando Castile, licensed gun owner, told the cop, I am a licensed gun owner, I have my gun on me, shot and killed. The NRA did nothing for him, right? right. Marissa Alexander fires a warning shot to get uh, to get away from her husband. Her, was that, he was still her husband? Or his so. ex-husband? I think it was still her husband yeah. with a new baby. They did nothing for her. Why are they not here for black gun owners when they get into trouble? They are clearly here for white gun owners to make them think you should be afraid of black people right. and have protection when they come to get you. Mm -hmm. So what I was ref referencing earlier was the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act that uh, can happen now. But just days after Trayvon was killed, the National Reciprocity Act was brought up by an Alaska mm -hmm. senator. Like, Look, literally, if, if, the if body more, was barely cold. If more guns were the answer, America would be the safest country in the yeah. world. But the opposite is true. We are the least safe country in the world in terms of gun homicides. And the areas where there are more guns, mm -hmm. 
you see more homicides. In the area where there are less guns, you see less of that. And please point me to the one story, which I cannot find, where some shooter came in and a good guy with a gun, with a concealed carry, yeah. shot him and stopped him. I, I would That would be actually, great, but it does there, not exist. Actually, there was a story the same day that that shooting happened. There was another shooting where a potential shooter went into a church. Um, and uh, attempted to take the church, you know, the folks hostage yeah. and with a gun. They were able to Not subdue to him, um, subdue him, knock him down, and the one of the parishioners grabbed the gun. When the cops came in, they shot the, the good guy with the gun. Right. <laughs> so, and and coming to a school near exactly. you. Exactly. Mean, but, you know, but to your point, it, like, I think this national conversation about arming teachers is a distraction. Yeah, yeah. It is a, you know, a spoke bomb to throw in the crowd really? to say, focus on this and not focus on the real concrete things that we can do to address this issue. That's, and so I think... That suggests that Trump is saying that strategically... Think, no, no, no. I don't think it's a Trump strategy. I think it's an over... I think it's an overall... You're talking about... We're talking about NRA. We're talking about others. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think necessarily that all the time that President Trump is himself thinking of these things. Oh, I think right. he is repeating yeah. things that people are telling well, him well, or that he's heard. Well, after Sandy Hook, Wayne LaPierre said, let's arm teachers. Exactly. So he's now repeating, so he's repeating NRA thing, right? And so I think this is, and even, you know, I haven't done any interviews on this question, because I was like, it's a distraction. Right. We know exactly what we need to do yeah. in order to address this issue. It worked when we had an assault weapons ban. We need to do that. It works that we have, you know, people like to bring up Chicago as the, you know, example, or yeah. even here in New York City. But the people that are getting guns illegally here in New York City and in Chicago are getting them outside of the state because mm -hmm. they have weaker laws and able to yeah, bring in them Florida, here. which is one of the weakest. And just in our last 45 seconds here, which is a disservice, I'll admit. But <laughs> back to Trayvon, like, let's end with the man and the man that he would have been. Like, the promise of Trayvon is gone, and we won't let him die twice by not remembering him. So I'm going to ask each of you just to, like, what Trayvon moving forward would mean, knowing that there's a documentary and the book is out and all of these things, this touch point. Is Trayvon Martin the Emmett Till of our generation? Um, I think that's a fair comparison in that he helps that he dies uh, at the hands of a racist, um, killed because he's black, and then his parents are really instrumental in pushing him forward. I mean, we remember Emmett. Um, because he sacrificed his life, but it's really Mamie Till, is the, his mother, is the reason why we will forever remember that, because she opened the casket um, for all the world to see, and then media jet comes in and photographs it, um, and sparking a movement. I mean, so many people. Rosa Parks, on the bus, was not physically tired. She was thinking about Emmett Till, and she's like, I cannot, and she talks about this in her autobiography, I can't get up because Emmett Till, right? They did him wrong. It's not that she was tired, and that does a disservice to her as an activist to think she was physically tired after her normal work day. Like, no, no, she was fine. She's like, I'm fine, but I'm thinking about him. Yeah. So definitely Trayvon helps spark a movement uh, for us. Tragically, he had to lose his life for it. And, you know, we have no idea what he could have been. He could have right. been anything. Yeah. And, you know, and as your lead, I've been talking about who he would have been as a man. But I, you know, am thinking of him as a boy, as a son. Yeah. Um, and particularly um, for, you know, hundreds and thousands of young black people 
who are perceived to be older than they are, they're not allowed to fully embrace and be children. They're not allowed to be children in the classroom and have regular outbursts like, you know, everyone else. They're seen as a threat in that aspect. They're not able to fear for them fear for their lives um, and, in his case, be able to push back against an aggressor who he had no idea of knowing who he was and trying to save his own life. And so thinking about him and millions of other um, uh, young people of African descent who have to live that life, who have to grow older um, in the eyes of other people before their time, it makes it stressful. It makes it um, uh, more upon me to make sure that we are working to change and make sure to have legislation and policy on the books that helps enforce their humanity, their childhood, so that they don't have to do this. Elzoe Williams from the NAACP Brooklyn chapter, Pale Deuce, and <laughs> Torre, your new podcast on iTunes yeah. available. They're phenomenal. Elzoe Williams this week. Check it out. All right. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks. If you've gone up Fulton Street into Fort Greene, you've likely seen the building with the unmistakable red neon sign, the one that says Urban Glass. Quick point of fact here, a more understated organization shares that building. Uh, it's called Brick. But we're not talking about us. We're talking about them, that they've been around for 40 years, serving as New York City's leading glass-making art shop. To tell us about this anniversary and some of the work currently in their exhibition space, we have Executive Director Sibel Malone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And an actual glass artist, John Roach. Welcome to 102BK. Thank you. So, 40 years on, you guys have a beautiful space fronting right on Fulton that draws lots of folks in with some of the amazing work as exhibited by this guy as well. But... What's the mission and where are you guys going? So uh, Urban Glass was founded in 1977 really with a mission that is, is true to the work that we do today, to provide a home for artists making and pushing the limits of glass and providing the public with opportunities to see and learn about that work. Um, we are always, you know, kind of at our, at our core, an artist-focused organization. We have a a community of about 380 professional artists that make work in our studio, and then, of course, thousands of students that are coming to learn everything from glass blowing to neon and everything in between. So we're always just trying to push those things forward, uh, provide opportunities for more and more people to understand what's possible in glass, a material that otherwise is pretty tough to... Uh, to put to use. All right, I'm looking at the artist now. John, pretty tough to use and really pushing those boundaries forward like Sibel was talking about. I wonder how you found your way into working in the medium of glass and even further, what it would have meant to have had a space like Urban Glass when you had that development. Yeah, it's a really great question because I'm actually not a glass artist. Mm -hmm. I'm an artist, uh, most of my work deals with sound, but I have begun to work with glass artists, so it's really become an important collaborative part of my work. Uh, initially, it came from uh, a residency that I did at Pilchuck Glass School, which is on the West Coast, and that's led to other things until I found my way here to Urban Glass. Um, really, it's working with people who know their craft so well and know how to work with this really magical medium of glass that's solid, then it's a liquid, and, yeah. you know, it's really incredible to see it, um, to see it happen, and then to see your ideas given form in yeah. this really rare kind of medium. 
magical and potentially injurious, but <laughs> that hasn't stopped hundreds of people from signing up their children. Talk to us about the educational component that happens. Well, so John is a great example of one of the things that I think Urban Glass does really well and, again, is a really important part of the work that we do, which is bringing artists and makers from all backgrounds into learn about the possibilities of the material. And, of course, those, those artists can start in middle school. Yeah. Um, so glass is a material that requires some requires both a, a studio facility to right. use. No one's blowing glass at home. Um, and then also involves instruction um, around, if nothing else, safety. Uh, so our education program really brings people in to do everything from 30-minute long lessons at one of our open studio events to eight-week long classes. John's actually teaching a class about um, sound and glass later this spring. So there are really opportunities for people to do everything from just get a taste of what's possible in glass to develop kind of deep technical skills to maybe do something that's more experimental around the material. And so it's a place where artists of all kinds and backgrounds and, and the larger community kind of mix and mingle. Um, you'll find professional artists making work for museum shows working alongside middle school students here wow. from Fort Greene, and um, that's part of the magical mix. That so in place. our last minute, I'm going to ask you to give me the man who works in audio and is dabbling in glass, paint a picture now for folks on the podcast about this work that we're seeing currently on exhibition. Okay, great. So the exhibition itself is called Pushing Buttons, and I think one really interesting thing about the show is that it's a lot of artists who are not, to the best of my knowledge, are not primarily glass artists, right. but they're artists who've used glass in really interesting ways with their work. It deals with technology, science. My own piece is um, kind of a strange fusion between uh, a, fifth, a 16th century French novel uh, about words getting frozen in midair during a battle that thaw and explode, and the uh, sort of explosive language of Donald Trump. And so that's the mashup that I'm working with. And the piece itself, um, it has these sort of scientific flasks, right. and they're full of this stuff called stand oil. And stand oil is this really thick, thick oil used for painting, usually. And people who come and visit the piece they can if they they come between Thursday and Monday can drop dry ice into this flask so they can take the lid Reaction. off pull the ice put it in there and what happens is when it lands in this material right. it creates like these jewels these little bubbles that are quite beautiful and very slow and that then triggers audio of the seven um, supposedly banned words uh, that right. were not to be used by the Center for Disease Control. Yeah. So it was kind of a take on uh, media and how words get frozen in the media and explosive thawing words of Donald Trump. Well, Sibel, tell us where we are going and how much time we have to see this work before the next show. So this exhibition is on view through March 10th, so people have just a little bit more time, and Moments it's to go. absolutely worth checking out, because yeah. as John is saying, his work and all of the artists um, are making projects that we hope, much like all of our exhibitions, will really surprise our audience about the ways that artists are making work in glass, and they are all not necessarily as deeply interactive as John's with yeah. dry ice, um, but they all either are generating sound or growing um, plants in our gallery. Um, it's a pretty exciting mix. So March 10th. Uh, March 10th, you've heard it. You've got just enough time to get down and experience urban glass. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Well, thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow we'll be talking about hacktivism and freeing up information. And singer-songwriter Joan Osborne will be here to talk about womanly hips. Come back. We'll see you then. Bye now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hobbesack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>